Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked across Dante's Inferno, and it's now beginning the climb up Mount Purgatory. This is the first episode of Close Reading. That's what we call it in English studies of close literary readings of passages from Purgatorio. We've passed through some introductory material, and now we're ready to start the first 12 lines of Canto One of Purgatorio. You can find this, my English translation of the medieval Florentine, on my website, markscarborough.com. You needn't find it there, but you can find it there. You can also drop comments and questions there. That would be terrific. Otherwise, just sit back and let's take on the first 12 lines of Purgatorio. <laughs> Long time getting here, eh? Well, here we go. To make its run through milder waters, the little boat of my talent hoists its sail so it can leave that cruel sea behind. So I'll sing of the second kingdom, the one where the human soul purges itself and becomes worthy enough to leap into the heavens. But here, May my deadened poetry rise again, O holy muses, for I am yours. And here, let Calliope rise a bit, following along in my song, with those chords that made the miserable magpies feel such guilt that they despaired of any pardon. That's where we're going to stop it, at the third invocation of the muses in Dante's comedy, the first in Purgatorio. Just these first 12 lines, and they are tough. Dante has indicated to us that what's ahead requires our full attention. we got to sit, <laughs> sit up and pay attention. I have to tell you that I teach a lot of literary seminars and um, literary classes for adults in libraries across New England and online, too. And I've been doing a lot of Proust, good grief, Proust lately, and Sigmund Freud and Gertrude Stein. I have to tell you that when Ever I teach those books, I tell my students to sit up straight in a hard chair, don't read Proust in bed, and make sure you've had at least a cup of coffee before you set into Proust's prose. Same thing here. This is telling us to sit up and pay attention. These opening 12 lines are a corker bit of poetry, difficult to unpack, but we're going to do our best to do it. Here we go. The first thing we should notice is that bit of leaving the cruel sea behind. You'll notice that this is a reference, of course, to Inferno. And we have to question here, what is the cruel sea? Is it Inferno itself, the journey, the journey across hell that Dante, our pilgrim, has taken with Virgil? Or is it the poetry of Inferno. Remember in Inferno itself, Dante has often wished for clucking or harsh verses. Remember that he has told us sometimes that the poetry of Inferno is coarse, and we've seen it get very coarse, very crude, very graphic, very bodily in places. Is this cruel sea Inferno, the journey of Inferno, or is it the poetry 
of Inferno. And I want to tell you that I don't have a firm answer on that. The commentariat comes down split. You should know that the early commentators all thought that the Cruel Sea was the journey across Inferno. Later, the humanist tradition that begins in the Renaissance starts interpreting the Cruel Sea as the poetry of Inferno. Now you can find critics on either side of the debate. But what I want to say right here is something that seems to me very important. This opening bit of Purgatorio hoisting the sails on his little boat so it can leave behind the cruel sea, it encourages us to reread Inferno, to reinterpret it. What we thought was a walk down hell or as we've discussed, perhaps uphell if seen from another direction. We are now being encouraged to reinterpret it as a sea, as some sort of voyage across turbulent waters. Furthermore, we are also automatically being set up then to reread Inferno and also to find resonances inside Inferno here. Remember in the first canto of Inferno, Dante wakes up in that dark wood, he struggles out, and then we have that metaphor that as a man who comes ashore after swimming in troubled waters and looks back at the strait that almost did him in, remember that? Early on, we're talking, oh, Inferno 1, about lines 22 through 27, Well, that was a metaphor for an ocean. Here again, we have, is it a metaphor? Or is, in fact, Inferno actually the thing itself, a cruel sea? Well, note that the metaphors are becoming increasingly physical. That leads us to the second problem in the passage. Let me restart it and read it from the top. To make its run through milder waters, the little boat of my talent hoists its sail so it can leave that cruel sea behind. This is crucial because you've now read or heard read the first two cantos of Purgatorio, and you know that the angel arrives in a boat carrying the souls of those who will purgate themselves on the way to heaven. But here... You'll note that there is no angel. It is Dante in his little boat. We begin with a water symbol, the little boat of his talent hoisting its sail, that then actually becomes a physical reality. The angel in his boat bringing those to the shores of purgatory. And the angel brings them, whereas Dante hoists his own sail and sails right up to purgatory. We should instantly think of Ulysses back in Inferno. We'll talk much more about him in episodes ahead. And his voyage across the ocean to that mountain that finally does him in with its whirlpool. We should think about that, but we should also think about the fact that everybody else gets here because an angel gets them here. Dante gets here because he sails his own boat? Really? Wow, that's a big ego right there. Or because Virgil gets him here and not an angel? Oh, that would say a lot about classical learning. Or because the little boat of his talent somehow escapes the bigger, grandiose 
boats. Is there a way in which the little boat of Dante's talent somehow slips under the wire, unlike <laughs> the big boat of the angel that will eventually bring those first souls to Mount Purgatory? Let me start again through the passage to get to our next point. To make its run through milder waters, the little boat of my talent hoists its sail so it can leave that cruel sea behind, so I'll sing of the second kingdom. This, it strikes me, is really important because we begin with the poet. This is in direct contrast to Inferno. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. But we're starting not with the pilgrim, the way we did in Inferno, the pilgrim waking up in the dark wood. But we're starting here with the poet and what the poet will do. I'll sing of the second kingdom. This second kingdom, Mount Purgatory, is in this world. Hollander, Robert Hollander, the great late now Dantist, makes a big point that this kingdom is not of this world, that Dante is now taking his leave of this world and starting to write of eternal things that are non-terrestrial. I want to say a big fat no. Mount Purgatory is found on Earth. It is part of this terrestrial landscape. This kingdom, this second kingdom, the second canticle of comedy, takes place on Earth. Most of comedy takes place on Earth. All of Inferno and all of Purgatorio takes place on this globe. And that is really important to see because Purgatorio is, for my money, the most human part of the poem. It is where humans come into doing what humans do best. All of that lies ahead of us, but it is important to remember that the song of this second kingdom is still a terrestrial song. The passage goes on and gives our third invocation to the muses. Let's talk about this for just a second. The passage says, here, may my deadened poetry rise again. We're going to come back to that concept of deadened poetry and what it means, but let's skip over it and just let it be what it is right now. My deadened poetry rise again, O holy muses, for I am yours. And here let Calliope rise a bit, following along in my song with those chords that made the miserable magpies feel such guilt that they departed from any pardon. This is, again, as I said, the third invocation to the muses in the poem. The first happened in Inferno, Canto 2, and we might as well read it. Dante has found Virgil. They have decided to set off on the journey through the three kingdoms. Dante, at first, as evening comes on and the night creatures start to come up, Dante at first gets a little nervous and he goes into that big thing of who am I to take this journey? But before that, he invokes for the first time the muses. Oh, muses. Oh, high genius, help me now, oh memory, that already wrote what I saw, your nobility will here become apparent. That's Canto 2, lines 7 through 9. That's our first invocation. And you'll note that that is pretty generic. And it is 
pretty classical in its emphasis. The muses, these great uh, sisters who invoke all sorts of arts and provoke all sorts of arts. It's pretty generic to them, and it's pretty subtle to them. And notice that there, they're called the geniuses. Notice that in this passage in Purgatorio, it's the poet Dante who has the talent who has the genius. That seems a really important shift. And there's a second invocation to the muses in Inferno. It's found in the 32nd canto, pretty far down, just before we get that giant view of Satan, just as we cross over from the giants. Dante says, may those same ladies help my verse who help Amphion in case Thebes, so that what I say doesn't diverge from the facts themselves. We talked a lot about this, about here how the muses inspired the building of Thebes, the ultimate ruined city, and that Dante is coming into the final keep of the city of Dis. Again, very classical. But let me just say that this invocation to the muses seems very different in Purgatorio because the emphasis here is twofold. One, it's on resurrection. And let me explain this. When Dante says, let my dead poetry rise again, we can hear the resurrection thematic right there. Oh, holy muses, I am yours. And then he gives us an answer. Here, let Calliope rise a bit. And there's more rising action in the verbs in the passage. Following along in my song with those chords that made the miserable magpies feel such guilt that they despaired of any pardon. The reference here is to Ovid's Metamorphoses, the fifth book, lines 294, all the way out to the end of the fifth book, about line 678. And it would really be great if you went out and read this passage because it is so intense. But let me just explain it to you. Basically, there are these daughters who get <laughs> named by their father essentially for the muses in kind of a very hubristic act. And so Piraeus names his daughters for the muses. They think they can sing as well as the muses. They challenge the muses to a singing contest. The daughters of Piraeus sing a song basically about the downfall of the gods and basically making fun of the gods, how the gods were put to, to rout by these giants, chased off into Egypt, had to hide. Zeus had to pretend to be a lion, and, you know, um, uh, Apollo had to pretend to be a raven, and they had to hide out in Egypt because they were being chased out by giants, by titans. You can imagine this song doesn't sit too well with the current uh, gods, to say the least. And so Calliope st steps forward and sings a song about, well, about Proserpina and Ceres. This is the great regeneration cult. Proserpina is the woman who is culling flowers, probably in Ovid's telling of it in Sicily, 
culling flowers, the god of the underworld, Plutus or Dis, comes up, grabs her, rapes her, takes her down into hell. Her mother, Ceres, looks all over the world for her, can't find her anywhere, begs Zeus for some kind of relief, and Zeus decrees, essentially, that Proserpina can come up half of the year and then has to go back down to Dis, or Pluto's kingdom, the other half of the year. This is springtime regeneration. And there's all kinds of ways in which Dante is playing here with that kind of regeneration. Not like those miserable magpies, the daughters of Piraeus, who are known as the Piraeides. Not like those, but rather may Calliope aid his song, we'll talk about how she's going to aid it in a minute, aid his song to rise up to something better. And may she be part of the resurrection of his poetry. Calliope is an interesting little test case here, or an interesting little note. So let's just stop on Calliope for a second. A lot of the commentators see Calliope as the muse of epic poetry. And without a doubt, Ultimately, Calliope will become the muse of epic poetry. But in Ovid's telling of it, Calliope is not necessarily the goddess or muse of epic poetry so much as she is the premier or superior muse. There might be a way we should think about that here, because there might be a way that Dante's not necessarily invoking epic into Purgatorio, so much as he's asking for the best help, the best inspiration he can get. A lot of commentators want to insert something here about epic, and that the poetry is making a shift from tragedy to epic, but I don't actually think you can do that, because A, it doesn't happen in the Ovidian passage, and B, I'm not sure that epic supersedes tragedy in Dante's understanding of literary forms. Tragedy may supersede epic, which is why Virgil's Aeneid is seen as a tragedy. The fullest, the most, what do I want to say, reliant, um, the, 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 the deepest understanding of the human condition, not tragedy like Lear or Julius Caesar, not Shakespearean tragedy, but tragedy as the kind of full exploration of the melancholic position of being a human. I want to say that while many commentators see here an invocation to epic, it may be that if we go back to Ovid and we go back to Dante's own understanding of literary genres, we may say, no, it's not epic. You're actually putting a later spin on this whole thing. It may be that Dante just wants the best singer possible and the singer who sings about resurrection, about Proserpina, about the one who is carried off to the underworld and comes back as the resurgence of spring. Let's go back to that problem of deadened poetry. Remember I said that there's a translation problem or a problem with the words, and I want to come back to it. He says, but here may my deadened poetry rise again. And it's that phrase, morta poesi, deadened poetry, that I really want to sit on for just a second. What is dead poetry, or as I've translated it, 
deadened poetry. There are two ways to read this, and they split once again in the commentary between the early commentators and the later humanist commentators. You can say that it is poetry that has died to all the classical models, all of the later Renaissance and humanist commentators start to say that what Dante is saying here is that I have to move away from the classical tradition that has deadened poetry and that was used so much in Inferno. And now I have to move out to the Christian tradition. This poetry that has fully explored its classical ramifications now has to rise up again and find a new way to express itself. I'm going to disagree with this fundamentally given the appearance of the old man ahead of us in these cantos and given the classical references that are going to occur ahead of us in these cantos. So I'm going to disagree with that, but I just want you to know it's a dominant way to read that. Or you can simply say deadened poetry, morta poesi, is poetry about the dead, poetry that has been deadened by the dead, poetry that is about death itself and the dead. There's also a little problem there, and let me, uh, obviously I come down more on that side, but let me explain the problem to you. The problem is everybody's dead in purgatory. Everybody's dead in paradise. Everybody's dead in this poem except for Dante. Dante's the living guy. Maybe that lion, that leopard, and that she-wolf were living back in Inferno 1, but otherwise everybody's dead. (laughs) Beatrice, Virgil. So, poetry about the dead? Well, purgatory's about the dead, too. Are we talking, then, a dead as in an existential experience of deadness? Is there a way in which the damned in hell are dead in ways that those in purgatory and paradise aren't? Remember, everybody from here on out is, to use the modern word, saved. Everybody's heading toward heaven. It's the question of whether you have to purgate your way to heaven or whether you end up in heaven. But everybody from here on out in comedy is, quote unquote, saved. Is it that the dead in hell are dead in some fundamental way that no one else in the poetry is? Or is it that some way the poem has gotten deadened by hell itself? All an interesting problem that Dante condenses into two little words, morta poesi, two little words that require a great deal of unpacking. And here's something else that requires unpacking. The hubris in this passage. It is in. Sane. We already touched on it with the bit about sailing up to purgatory in his own little boat, hoisting its sail. We already talked about that, but let's just stop again and say the little boat of my talent hoists its sail. Who hoisted that sail? It doesn't seem as if God did or the Holy Spirit did or any theological entity or any angelic entity did. It seems like Dante has to hoist the sail of his talent, of his genius, and sail up to purgatory. Wow. A little bit of hubris there. Oh, there's more. It goes on so I'll sing of the second kingdom, the one where the human soul, and I translated it as purges itself and becomes worthy enough to leap into the heavens. You should just stop right there. The words in the Florentine are si purga. Now, this can be a passive construction where the human soul 
is purgated, is purged, but it is a reflexive verb. And there is a little quibble of a translation right here. The human soul, and you see I came down solely on the reflexive answer, the human soul purges itself. Oh, so I do the purging. I'm here in purgatory. I'm going to purgate myself. This brings up an interesting problem of the will, and within the first six lines of Purgatorio, Dante set us up for it. It's not God who's purging your soul. You're doing it, at least so I read si purga. Now, again, you can read it as a passive construction, and it is totally within the realm of possibility. The human soul is purged. But I'm going to just take it at face value and say there's a little bit of a red flag there. And there's another bit of hubris in the passage It goes on. It's all about Calliope. Here, let Calliope rise a bit. Okay, fair enough. Here comes the best muse. Get on up here. Following along in my song with those chords that made the miserable magpies feel such guilt that they despaired of any pardon, Calliope follows him. Calliope. Is following our poet. Wait a minute. Isn't this reversed? Isn't he supposed to be following Calliope? Now, I want to tell you there's a little bit of an interesting twist here in terms of the historical resonances. A lot of people translate this as let Calliope rise up and accompany my song with those chords, but that's not actually what it says. It is actually following. And here's why that's really important, because Dante does not live in a world of music the way you and I do. He does not live in a world in which the melody happens and chords are being played under the melody to support it, which is what accompanying my song would seem to indicate. Dante lives at the beginnings of polyphony. Let me explain this. Polyphony is a musical form in which we sing lines out of sync with each other. The easiest way to explain it is row, row, row your boat the round. I start singing one line, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. And then you follow, right? You come in and we're both singing, but we're out of whack with each other. That's kind of polyphony. Polyphony means multiple voices. And in a polyphonic structure, I'm going to start out on a melodic line and you're going to follow me and your line is going to add depth and resonance to my line. It may or may not be an exact copy of my line, but it's going to add harmonic resonances as our various notes come into consonance, that is, they sound good together, come into consonance together, and as they come into dissonance, that is, as they seem to clash against each other. And we're going to have this constant consonance and dissonance. Dante, the poet's voice, is the initial voice of the polyphony. And the calliope is following along, supporting, bringing the consonants and the dissonance into this, the poet's song. If that's not a moment of hubris, a moment of overwhelming hubris, I don't know. But there may be a way that Dante tries to get out of it. 
Let's get back to that contrast with the opening of Inferno. There, remember, our pilgrim wakes up in a dark wood, doesn't know where he is, is lost. And then, as we talked about way back then at the beginning of Inferno, the poet kind of steps forward into it and says, I even shudder now to think about it. And we talked about how there are various ways in which the poet and the pilgrim are in play with each other, but... It is still the pilgrim who comes to himself in the dark wood. Here, we start with the poet. And the pilgrim is buried in the text. In fact, we're not going to see the pilgrim for several more lines in Purgatorio. We have to get through a lot. And we're starting with the poet. This seems important for a couple of reasons. One, there may be a way that despite the hubris of all of this, I'm hoisting my sails, the soul purges itself, Calliope follows along after me. There may be a way in which there's also a bit of fear expressed here, and that's with those miserable magpies, those Pierides, those girls that tried to outdo the muses and got turned into mocking magpies because they dared to question that their talent was better than the muses. Maybe this passage ends with just a little bit of discord, just a little bit of fear. Maybe the poet here, underneath all of his bravado, expresses the fear that if he's not careful, (laughs) he's going to become a miserable magpie too. I love it that the poet's ambivalence, not the pilgrims, but the poet's ambivalence may be stated in this passage. Or how's this? The poet's divided self between, hey, I'm a great poet, and oh my gosh, if I don't pull this off, what are people going to think about me now? That divided self may be expressed in this very passage. Let me say one more thing before we exit the passage. There is a way in which, and just give me this for a second and think it through, Inferno is purgatory for the poet. Just think about this for a minute. The purgation undergone in Inferno is partly the poet's purgation. The poet either, we could say, has to get it out, all the vulgar stuff, just get it out, you know, get it out of the way, write all the vulgar stuff so that he can go on to write the heavenly stuff. It may be also that the poet has to learn his place. There is a way in which Inferno is a purgatorial landscape, Hmm. even for the pilgrim, but we'll come to that in future episodes, as well as the poet. And purgatory is not the purgatorial landscape. The purgatory for the poet is to pass through the writing of Inferno. The difficulty of writing in the common tongue, the difficulty of writing about divine things, the difficulty about writing about eternal things when you don't think you're worthy to do it, all of that is purgated by the success of Inferno. And therefore, as I've told you before, I believe that Purgatorio is a meta-commentary on how I came to write Inferno. And so it doesn't strike me as at all surprising that Purgatorio starts with the poet, not the pilgrim. 
Okay, that's so much to say about those first 12 lines. They are really tough. Let's read them one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 1, lines 1 through 12, just to summarize them, and then we'll be ready to go on to the next bit. To make its run through milder waters, the little boat of my talent hoists its sail so it can leave that cruel sea behind. So I'll sing of the second kingdom, the one where the human soul purges itself and becomes worthy enough to leap into the heavens. But here... May my deadened poetry rise again to O Holy Muses, for I am yours. And here let Calliope rise a bit, following along in my song with those chords that made the miserable magpies feel such guilt that they despaired of any pardon. Purgatorio is going to require more out of us than Inferno does. I think Dante is consciously telling us that in these opening lines. Now, let me tell you that Purgatorio is going to get easier. It's these first few bits that are unbelievably complex. We don't even have any plot under us right now. We just have concepts of poetry, which tells us we've already hit a place of abstraction rather than the storyline, the plot of the journey itself. This is all cueing us to sit up and pay attention. So let's do that. We'll do that in future episodes. To get there, please subscribe to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate it. I really appreciate the ratings. I'm glad we're walking back together. And we're going to move on to the next passage of Purgatorio in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I can't wait to actually get to the journey of the pilgrim as well as the poet. (laughs) 